Chapter 22 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Lorenowicz. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Keeble Chatterton. Chapter 22 Smith and the Pirate Schooner. With saddened gaze, Smith watched his old ship fade away into the invisible. There was but little wind, the sea was wonderfully calm, and a thick fog came up which swallowed the wake of the zephyr from his vision. In the whole of the western hemisphere, there was no more miserable man alive at that moment than Aaron Smith. His ship had gone, his expectation of reaching England was torn from him, and his very life was liable to be taken away from him by force at any minute. He had no thought now for anything else than suicide. The pirate captain knew this, but it was not convenient for him to forfeit so able a seaman. He had other work for him to do yet, and threatened that should Smith attempt self-destruction, he should be lashed to one of the schooner's guns and there left to perish slowly of hunger. At daylight the next morning, the schooner got under way, and after proceeding in a southwest direction, anchored in two fathoms in a beautiful harbor called Rio Medias. It is from this point that the second part of Smith's interesting story really begins. Arrived in this delightful anchorage, the schooner could afford to remain some time, and the pirate informed Smith that he expected a good many visitors on board, including two or three magistrates with their families. The Englishman ventured the remark that he wondered the pirate was not afraid of magistrates coming on board a ship of that notoriety, but the pirate merely laughed and suggested that Smith did not understand the Spanish character. Presence of coffee, he explained, and other little things will always ensure their friendship, and from them I receive intelligence of all that occurs at the Havana, and know every hostile measure in time enough to guard against it. Before long, the visitors came aboard, and the pirate, with something of the grand manner of an old-time Spaniard, received the ladies and gentlemen on his ship with great ceremony. Smith was brought forward and presented as an interesting English prisoner, and attracted more than a little attention. It is customary, with the Spanish-American people, to conclude such social visits as this with a dance. Smith had little heart for such frivolity, but in small as in great matters he had no alternative but to obey, and was selected to dance with one of the daughters of a magistrate. However, in spite of the enforced pleasure, he must have made himself singularly affable, for before the festivities had concluded, the lady and the Englishman had become more than mere acquaintances to each other. Womanlike, she began by taking pity on the European sailor, displayed unwanted interest in his story, and determined to do her best to get him released. Mere pity and interest gave place to affection, but the utmost precaution and stealth had to be exercised, lest the pirate captain, or any individual member of his crew, should so much as have the faintest suspicion that a plot for escape was being planned. The surname of the lady Smith did not learn, but her Christian name was Serafina, she was a pretty brunette with sparkling eyes and a kind, benevolent nature. In the monotony of her West Indian life, the advent of Aaron Smith had been as that of a person from another planet. The stories which she had learned of London had now the chance of being confirmed or refuted. She inquired eagerly about the grandeur of England's metropolis and asked naively, 
What sort of a building the immense church was that everybody went to see? A fresh interest had thus entered into her life. A man from the Eastern Hemisphere, a robust English sailor with all the romance clinging thereto which an emotional Latin temperament was capable of conjuring up. But to the matter-of-fact mind of Aaron Smith, all this embarrassing concern on the part of Serafina suggested nothing less than treachery. It was difficult to believe that this was not part of the pirate captain's plot to entrap him, but the suspicion haunted him only at the first, and before long he was destined to find in the lady his best friend and commiserator. It would have been patent to any careful observer that these two individuals had fallen into that condition which is known as love at first sight. The guests departed in due course, and the more serious business of the sojourn in that port was got in hand. The coffee and the other portions of the cargo which had been taken from the Zephyr were now unloaded and sold to the natives. This took some time and was spread over some days, varied by carousels and dancing. There was no lack of refreshment, and instead of everyone helping himself with his fingers, as had been the case when first the schooner had been encountered, everybody was supplied with knives and forks and spoons, which had been pillaged from the English brig. The wine flowed immoderately, and as usual, most of the crew were soon in a state of intoxication. The sale of the cargo was proceeding, but as the men were flushed with wine, it was not long before two of the crew fell to quarreling. High words were followed by a fierce duel with knives, and the sight was sickening. One of the combatants collapsed to the ground with a dull thud, severely stabbed in his left breast. For some unexplained reason, the crew of the pirate ship had in their minds the fixed idea that Smith was something of a doctor, and during the whole of his captivity no protestations of his could uproot that conviction. Probably he knew as many useful first aid remedies as any average sailor of the early 19th century, and he was endowed with all the resource which a seaman usually possesses. Otherwise, he had no expert knowledge of medicine or of surgery. And yet, as we shall see before we come to the end of our story, it was this imaginary healing power which rendered him of the very greatest service. It fell to Smith's lot, then, from the first, to attend on the sick among his other duties, and in spite of his medical ignorance, he was ordered to see to the wounded man, to staunch the blood and dress the horrible wound. When the injured man had recovered sufficiently to be able to converse, he sent a message begging the captain to come and see him, and then he told his tale. The cause of the quarrel, said he, was because his antagonist formed one of the party that was bent on assassinating the captain and crew. That being accomplished, they would then possess the ship and enrich themselves with the plunder. The man with whom he had been fighting had now gone to Havana in order that he might get together more men to further his purpose. The pirate captain listened to the story with every attention, and was beside himself with rage that one of his own men should so far have dared to plot against him. Vowing certain destruction of them all, he summoned the crew on deck and informed them of the news. So soon as they had heard it, the entire ship's company rushed madly below to where the suspected man was lying, dragged the fellow from his bunk onto the deck, cut off his legs and arms with a blunt hatchet, gashed at his body with their knives, and then threw his half-dead remains overboard into the sea. The next morning, Smith was sent aloft to bend a new fore-topsail, and about noon, a ship being descried in the distance, he was told to report as to what sort of vessel she might be. 
Looking through his spyglass, Smith replied that she was a schooner standing to the westward. Is she a merchant or a man of war? yelled the captain from the deck. Mind you don't deceive me, he threatened, for if you do, I will cut off your head. I have already killed several of your countrymen, and take care you don't add yourself to the number. This made Smith doubly cautious, but at last, being certain in his mind, he reported her as a merchantman. Already the pirate had got under way, and the receipt of these welcome tidings caused him to give chase. Smith remained aloft and observed that the merchantman had now guessed the pirate's intention and was altering her course to the Norand. Smith passed the information at once below, but the only thanks he got was abuse from the skipper for not having informed him sooner. The sails filled to the meager breeze as the pirate ship slowly sped onward, but when they had cleared the reef outside, the pirate ordered the sweeps out, and with this auxiliary the ship began to travel fast over the smooth surface. Before long, the lazy breeze began to stir, and soon both vessels were standing on under a smart press of canvas. For several hours the chase continued, and before dark the Corsair was gaining rapidly, but she was yet a long way off and the pirate much feared that she might escape, as she would assuredly alter her course during the night. At 10 p.m. the merchantman was well out of sight, and Smith was ordered below. The pirate then issued his instructions and remarked that he would keep on that tack until 2 a.m., and if the vessel was not then visible, he would alter his course to the east. Meanwhile Smith, tired out with being tossed about while aloft, slept soundly until he was called. On coming on deck, he found that everyone was utterly at a loss to know the ship's position. Of any efficient navigation, there had been practically nothing. The whole crew had been drunk, there had been no light in the binnacle, no log had been thrown to ascertain the ship's speed, so it was impossible to guess the distance traveled during the past night. The pirate, therefore, called upon Smith to help. Smith answered very properly that it was impossible to say exactly their position, whereupon the unscientific captain threatened him with instant death if he could not give the required information. Smith could not make an impossibility possible, and answered, If you will wait till noon, he explained, I will endeavor to do so and the same threat was repeated in case he should fail to achieve this. But Smith was certainly lucky for once in his varied life, for, as he said at a later date, at this time the sun was in distance with the moon, and the sky being remarkably clear, the sea smooth, and the schooner making very little way, I had an opportunity at about nine o'clock to take a good lunar observation. So, after taking the sights, no one else on board had any knowledge of navigation, in fact, knew nothing better than seamanship and pilotage, he worked out his calculations and was able to find the true latitude when, to his great surprise, he discovered they were 60 miles west-northwest of Cape Buena Vesta, or 200 miles west of the position Smith had imagined. The captain was informed of the position, who ordered Smith to direct the helmsman to the proper course and to have the sails trimmed accordingly. He questioned Smith as to when they would pick up the land, and the Englishman answered that if the wind was favorable, they ought to do so in the afternoon. The captain demurred somewhat, then declared with an oath that if they did not then sight land, he would punish Smith. Fortunately, the breeze now freshened and became freer. Smith was nervously wondering whether he had made an error in his calculations, but at 4 p.m., to his great relief, the lookout man cried, Land! This happily ended Smith's suspense, and the schooner's coast pilot complimented him on his skill, 
But the captain had nothing to say except abuse. You rascal, he cried. You pretended not to know where the vessel was. But you see, you cannot deceive me, and I would advise you not to attempt it. They had held on an easterly course for some time, until at length they had come to an anchorage where they let go, and the following day proceeded into the harbor. While they were lying to their anchor, a boat full of men was observed to be approaching the ship. As they came on, it was seen to contain some of the men who, according to the man who had been wounded in that duel already narrated, had been plotting against the captain. The pirate was roused to fury on seeing him, and declared he would kill the lot of them. Then, ordering thirty muskets to be brought on deck, he awaited developments. When the boat got within about two hundred yards, the men therein ceased rowing and held up a white handkerchief as a signal for peace. This was answered by a similar signal from the schooner, and thus encouraged the men to lay to their oars again and pull towards the ship. But they had not rowed many more strokes before the pirate gave orders to fire on the boat, and so deadly was the effect at such close range that of the six men, five fell dead to the bottom of the boat, while the sixth leapt into the water and began to swim. But it was no part of the pirate's intention to allow this man to escape, and, dispatching a boat after him, the fellow was soon hauled from the sea and brought aboard the schooner. From that moment began a series of cruelties and inhuman tortures of which it is difficult to write calmly. The captain commenced by remarking that he was well aware of the share which this survivor had in the plot that had been detected. Admonishing him to confess, he warned him that if he should not reveal the whole truth, he would give him a cruel and lingering death. In vain did the terrified man protest his innocence, whereupon the captain had him stripped and exposed, naked and bleeding from the wounds already received, to the scorching heat of a West Indian July sun. Agony was piled on agony, and the captain showed no hint of mercy. Smith, with great courage and human feeling, entreated that the man might not be tortured so dreadfully, but the captain threatened him, too, with severest vengeance for his interference. Then addressing himself to the suffering wretch, the pirate announced that he was now about to put him to death, and advised him to prepare his soul for departure. Once more the man protested his innocence and begged for his life, but unavailingly. The next stage of terror began. Being placed in a boat, he was pinioned and his body lashed to the stern. Five men were told off to go in the boat in addition to Smith. "'You shall now see how we punish rascals,' exclaimed the captain, as he gave orders to the Englishmen, with the further instruction that the men were to row backwards and forwards up and down the narrow creek for the space of three hours. This creek was formed by a small strip of water that separated Cuba from a desert island. "'I will see,' exulted the brute." whether the mosquitoes and the sandflies will not make him confess. It was a brutal, inhumane form of torture, worthy only of such a captain. The broiling sun shone fiercely on the warm sea. In the shade, the thermometer registered as high as 90 degrees, and from the side of the creek a waste of swamps was swarming with insects of a venomous and numerous kind. These settled in scores on the body of the pinioned man, and sent him almost delirious with pain. His suffering body began to swell, and he became blistered from head to foot, a ghastly sight for his beholders. Now and again, in his agony, he besought the boat's crew to put him out of his misery, but all save the Englishmen laughed him to scorn, and even imitated his heart-rending cries. 
After a while, owing to the solar heat and the stings of the mosquitoes and sandflies, his face became so swollen that he was utterly unrecognizable. His voice began to fail, and his life was ebbing fast. Smith had, from the first, believed that the story of the alleged conspiracy was false, and that it had been invented out of revenge by the man who had received the thrust of the knife. Unable to endure this loathsome sight any longer, the Englishman, believing fully in the man's innocence, at length prevailed on the crew to let the victim die in peace. They consented to go round to the other side of the island, where they would be secure from the captain's observation, untie the man, and put something over him to shelter from the violent rays of the sun. So they rowed to the spot, and laying upon their oars, set him loose. But as soon as he felt the sea breeze on his parched face, he fainted right away. Then they decided to tie him up as before, lest they might incur the fury of the captain for their lenience, and pulling back to the schooner, they returned their prisoner. Instead of inspiring any feelings of pity, the sight of the moribund man caused the schooner's crew to break out into derisive laughter. As for the captain, he was disappointed that the fellow had not yielded any confession, and, turning to Smith, asked if he could now cure him of his ills. The Englishman replied that the man was actually dying. Then he shall have some more of it before he dies, was the pirate's sharp answer. So the victim was left in the boat, and the ladder was moored within a few yards of the ship. Six of the schooner's crew were ordered to take their muskets and to fire at the wretch. This was done, but when they went to examine the body, they were surprised to find him still breathing. So a pig of iron was fastened round his neck, and he was cast into the sea, lucky to be freed from any further variety of torture. Then music broke out on the schooner's deck, and, with the callousness of the most hardened criminals, the guitars tinkled and songs were indulged in, just as if nothing had happened to disturb their equanimity. It is no pleasure to have to chronicle such incidents as these, which detract from the more romantic side of piracy at sea, but it would be as unfair to paint only the glamour of these rovers as it would be to select merely the harsh cruelties which they imposed. While I can see little that is edifying in parading repellent details of blood and slaughter, yet it is part of one's duty to give some indication of the lengths to which these miscreants allowed themselves to go. There are those who would do away with the too practical and unromantic steamship. There are those who would scrap the navies of the world. Yet if all this were done, we should soon find the seas become once more the happy sphere for pirates, and a recrudescence of robberies and cruelties would result. The person who is forever laudator temporis acti, and while seeing nothing worthy of his praise except what he is pleased to call the good old days, is the very individual who would have objected strongly to live in the insanitary houses of our forefathers, who would have protested most strongly against the inconveniences of a protracted voyage in a sailing ship at the mercy of headwinds, pirates, and scurvy. It is too often that distance, coupled with a highly romantic temperament, which makes a page of black history appear with unwarranted attractiveness. In the story of the pirates, there would be little to entertain us were we not able to feel that in this prosaic 20th century we are at least free from the scourge of the sea. End of chapter 22